0: Welcome to today's edition of the Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on the afternoon of Sunday, February 19th. So a belated Happy Valentine's Day and an early Happy President's Day. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm Professor of Economics at Lehigh University. With me, as always, is uh, Glenn Hubbard. Professor of Economics and Finance at Columbia University. How are you today, Glenn?
1: I'm great. Thanks, Tony. How are you? I'm doing very
0: well, but I'm puzzled by what's going on in macroeconomics. And I don't know if I can remember a time. Uh, Economists, of course, always disagree about what the Fed should be doing and what Congress and the president should be doing. But this is a time in which economists seem to be at a greater degree of disagreement about what's actually happening. And so, you know, as a brief review for our listeners, of course, in 2022, we saw the biggest spike in inflation we've seen since the early 1980s, at the end of the great inflation of the 1970s. And the Federal Reserve swung into action in March by beginning to increase its target for the federal funds rate, which at that point was effectively zero in a range between zero and a quarter percentage point. And in steps, it's got it up to four and a half to four and three quarters. And of course, the federal funds rate is not particularly important by itself, because it's just the rate that banks and a few other large financial institutions charge each other on overnight loans. But as the Fed pushes that rate up, other interest rates in the economy that are important, notably the interest rate on mortgage loans, the interest rate people pay when they borrow money to buy a house, those rates also go up. So the usual story is as those interest rates rise, aggregate demand growth slows, the economy slows, and so we'd expect inflation to slow. And if the Fed manages to pull off a a soft landing, Unemployment might nudge up a bit, but we don't actually see a recession. Um, And it seemed late last year, late 2022, that maybe that was what was happening, as there were some signs the economy was slowing, residential construction was declining, and inflation seemed to be coming down a bit. But then in the most recent readings on inflation and employment and unemployment, it's not at all clear that that's happening, that we've seen that inflation has at least stopped declining. You know, there's a lot of kind of noise in the in the data. But if you look at what people think is the underlying sort of longer run inflation rate, you hear some people say, well, it's probably still four or five percent. And of course, the, the, the Fed's target rate is presumably won't stop trying to slow things until it gets inflation back down to 2%. I actually saw Larry Summers, who, of course, is professor of economics at Harvard and uh, was a secretary of the Treasury in the Clinton administration. He actually said he thought that the underlying inflation rate might still be as high as almost 7%, which, of course, is just way far above what the Fed would find acceptable. So what are we to make of all this?
1: Well, you know, it's a great question, Tony. It's important, obviously, in the classroom and in teaching this, it's hugely important in financial markets and, and public policy, too. You know, I think it's important to remember how we got here. You know, we had a confluence of aggregate supply and aggregate demand shocks surrounding the pandemic, and everybody had been focused on the supply element of the pandemic, but actually, overstimulative fiscal policy and a slow to react monetary policy did raise aggregate demand growth a lot, and hence much of the inflation that we're seeing. Various estimates uh, call it sort of splitting the difference between how much of this was supply and how much of it was demand. Uh, Goods versus services. You know, originally, this was a story about the goods market. Everybody wanted to buy things. But even as that has attenuated, services inflation is becoming embedded. You mentioned Larry Summers' comment. I think it's really... About high embedded services uh, inflation, and I think many economists—I'd certainly put myself in the camp—are worried that inflation has gotten awfully sticky at levels that are way above a level the Fed uh, would want. Now, what does this mean in terms of landing? The usual debate is about soft versus hard, and it's about you know can the Fed engineer exactly a glide path, much as you would land a big jetliner with enough room. And enough distance and enough deceleration. A hard landing, of course, means that the Fed has to uh, slam on the brakes. I, I won't be with the plane analogy because it wouldn't be very pretty, but let's, uh, you know, something much more violent for the, for the economy. What people are starting to talk about, and you mentioned how our, our models and our empirics are being challenged, is a no-landing sneer. In other words, the Fed has tried to tap on the brakes uh, and nothing much has happened. Financial conditions are easier than when the Fed started tightening. The labor market is hot. We haven't had unemployment uh, at this level you know, for, for 50 years. And I, I think the, the issue for the Fed is, what do you do about that? I always felt that getting inflation down to, say, 4% wasn't the challenge. Supply uh, resolution would get you there, but getting to 2%, which is what Chair Powell and his colleagues say they want, uh, is a much bigger challenge. Here's the hard problem, and we talk about it in the book. Milton Friedman famously talked about long and variable lags of monetary policy, which is why people usually say, well, give it time. But you know, recent research has suggested maybe lags are a little bit shorter, uh, maybe because of announcement effects in monetary policy uh, and other things. So we we don't know. I think the profession is trying to come to, to grips with this. Bottom line, I think the Fed is going to have to hold the federal funds rate higher than the current level and for an extended period of time if it wants to wring inflation out of the economy. What does that mean for all of us? Uh, it means that financial conditions will tighten. So the stock market will ultimately go down as a result of that bond prices will fall and interest rates uh, will go up. We'll also see collateral effects, obviously, on business spending, on household spending, uh, and on the federal budget. Because remember, the federal government had shortened the maturity of its debt at a time now when interest rates will be rising. So this is one of those issues that intersects so many topics that we talk about in the book in money and macro and fiscal policy. Uh, And we'll have to see. I think Economists are probably more uncertain both about the model and about what the data are telling us that I, I can ever remember in the in the profession. I don't know what you think.
0: Yeah, I think that that's right. It, it certainly is a very interesting period. Um, one of the things that um, might be worth talking about uh, in the classroom, particularly if you're talking about macro statistics, is we've seen something very interesting. You mentioned that. The unemployment rate down to 3.4%, and we saw a a big increase in the number of net jobs created in the the so-called payroll or establishment survey. One thing that might be interesting to talk about in class is that these numbers are all seasonally adjusted. And so what that means is that um, if you take employment, for instance, We know that every November and December, we see a big increase in employment as companies gear up for the holiday season. So department stores, those that remain, hire additional people. Um, Amazon hires more people in its warehouses, Federal Express and UPS and the Postal Service hire more people to um, deliver packages. So if you just looked at the raw data, just, you know, Without seasonally adjusting it, just you know what happens in November and December, if we didn't adjust it seasonally, what we'd find is the economy looked like it was exploding, right? We'd have huge increases in employment. And then, of course, in January, a lot of people are laid off. They expect to be laid off. They've taken these temporary jobs during the holiday season, and the companies gear back down to sort of normal level of staffing. And so we see a big decline in January. So once again, if we didn't seasonally adjust, we would think every January, oh my goodness, you know, the economy has just dropped into a very severe recession. So if you look at, at the numbers that we saw in, um, in January that caused a lot of people to wonder, um, in the establishment survey, we saw a, uh, a net increase of in over 500,000 jobs when many of the people who usually are pretty accurate in forecasting that were thinking maybe half that. In reality, there was a big decline in jobs from December to January, just as we normally expect. So when you look at that number and you say, well, if actually there were fewer people employed in January than in December, why did the number come out positive? And the answer is that according to the adjustments, the Bureau of Labor Statistics is making statistics is making, the decline was smaller than expected. Uh, But then you get into kind of iffy things because, um, you know, we we had just gone through two end of year periods when COVID was um, causing companies to be closed or only partially open, and people more people are becoming ill and so on. And then this last December and January, even though actually I caught COVID in December, but fewer people did. There was you know fewer companies that felt obliged to close and whatever. So that may or may not take a while before we know exactly. That may be messing with the seasonal adjustments. So yeah, we got this big. Um, we got this big increase in employment, but was it driven by maybe something not quite right in the seasonal adjustment factors, which kind of gets back to um, a point that you made that um, we think that there are long and variable lags in monetary policy, although maybe they're shorter than they were. And if you listen to the um, the uh, press conferences that Fed Chair Jerome Powell has after every meeting of the Federal Market Committee. You know he comes out and business reporters ask him uh, a series of questions, and he usually will be asked three or four times. Well, what's going to happen at the next meeting? Are you, you going to continue raising rates by a lot by little? And almost always he'll say, "Well, you know, before the next meeting, we'll have one or two more uh, readings of inflation and employment and so on," which maybe makes sense for him and the other members of the committee to worry about, but particularly if you think that the lags have gotten shorter. But on the other hand, there's a lot of noise in the numbers, meaning that we expect that they'll probably be adjusted so that maybe after the Bureau of Labor Statistics gets additional information, that big increase in employment in, in January may not have happened, that it may in fact have come in about where people had expected to. So are you concerned about that as well, that the Fed has sort of gotten into this position where it seems as if it's very responsive to some month-to-month movements in these series, where there might be a lot of noise in the series, so they may be reacting to changes that actually didn't happen?
1: I I am. I think a lot of market participants uh, have the same view that we may have issues with the models uh, we're using. And as you say, the confusion over whether we're looking at a mature lag structure for what's happening between monetary policy and the economy or something that still has a lot of room to move. So I, I don't envy the Fed. If it goes slowly to give itself optionality, it runs the risk of losing credibility. If it goes too quickly, It'll certainly have credibility, but it may run the risk of a larger than needed recession. So I think this is probably the toughest time for the Fed in calling it that I've seen. I I don't see that the policy error at the moment is obvious, but it's certainly one to worry.
0: Yeah, just to follow up on on another point that you made that um, in terms of how high the federal funds rate might go, how, how high their target for it might go that it kind of interacts with what you think the underlying inflation rate is, because right now they're at four and a half to four and three quarters, and they've been raising it fairly rapidly. And so you think, well, that's, that's contractionary. That's going to be slowing the economy down. But if you think that the underlying inflation rate is at least that, you know, and as I say, some people, I think Larry Summers is maybe a bit of an outlier by saying it's actually seven, but still Most people think it's at least four and maybe five. Then if you think in terms of the real federal funds rate, you take that four and a half, four and three quarters, and you subtract off what you think is, is this underlying rate of inflation to get the real rate, then we might still be around zero for the real federal funds rate or possibly even negative. So if you looked at it from that perspective, it's maybe not clear that, you know, we're necessarily running a monetary policy that is going to significantly slow the economy down if the real federal funds rate is either zero or maybe slightly negative.
1: Well, I agree with that. I mean, recent Taylor rule estimates, you know, we talk about the so-called Taylor rule in the book, you know, have the funds rate as high as 9% were the Fed to be exactly following a Taylor rule. So, yeah. We don't really know how far up we are, because as you say, to judge that, we need to know what is the true underlying rate of inflation, and we don't. But the Fed could still be quite a bit off course.
0: Maybe we can follow up on another um, point that you raised when you were um, making a, uh, a reference to the deficit, because the other news that we got um, this past week was that the Congressional Budget Office, which, of course, is... Um, the agency that Congress charges with um, coming up with forecasts of what's going to happen to the federal budget deficit and federal debt over the following years. And um, they announced that they had, um, by updating what their forecasts were, because of course, How do you figure out first, maybe just a quick review that of course the deficit is the gap between what the federal government is currently spending and what it's taking in in revenue, mostly from taxes. And um, when there is a deficit as as there has been in most recent years, and the congressional budget office says, they think that this year it'll be about $1.4 trillion. Then the treasury has to borrow that money because right, Congress has authorized the payments, they have to be made. If they can't be made out of taxes or other um, other revenue, they have to be made uh, made good by the Treasury borrowing. So it's that accumulated debt that represents the federal government's debt. And of course, each year you run a deficit, that debt gets larger. So the um, uh, the the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, uh, released a somewhat gloomy a report in which they increased what they thought future deficits would be and therefore increased what they thought the uh, amount of the federal government's debt would be. So, for instance, they had last May said that um, uh, last May was their last um, forecast of the deficit. They had a, a somewhat more optimistic um forecast. But now the forecast is that currently the federal government's debt is about 98% of GDP, right? So we often kind of scale it because you're talking about trillions. What does this mean? One way to think about it is what is the debt relative to GDP? And they said right now it's about 98%, but they see it increasing over the next 10 years, right? So this was a 10-year forecast what will things be like in 2033? And they say that it will be up to about 118%. So we're, we're passing into levels we really haven't seen uh, since World War II, right? So those are, um, are very high levels historically. So let me ask you this then, it, it, how concerned are you by the fact that um, the CBO now says we'll probably have maybe an extra $3 trillion in debt above what they had thought just a few months ago. Should we be concerned about that? What kind of consequences is that likely to have?
1: Well, we should, but the problem is actually quite hard to fix. So uh, we've had a lot of run up in debt during the pandemic from fighting the pandemic and One could argue about how wise or unwise some of that is, but that is a one-time issue of debt. The structural problems, though, for the country uh, have been the same as they have been a long time. In some sense, the the CBO's report is nothing new. I'm one of those geeks that looks forward to the release of the long-term outlook because it always has the same chart on the cover, which is taxes relative to GDP rises by a little bit over time, and spending just goes off the charts. And the reason is pretty simple. it has to do with demographics, the aging of the population and the burdens on the social Security and Medicare systems. Uh, to that one could now add much higher interest burdens. you know interest rates have been very, very low since the global financial crisis, not something that people really talked about in the deficit. they're now and and the debt burdens and now they're they're much worse. What does it mean in terms of economics? you know in, in the book, we talk about one channel as being through uh, crowding out in interest rates. I think that's probably not the first order channel here. As we note in the book, the US operates in a global capital market. And so there's certainly a, a substantial supply of funds to fund the Treasury's borrowing, not only from domestic savers, but from foreign savers. Rather, I think the issue is that, assuming we're not going to default, this implies a higher tax burdens or and or lower future spending. And the reason that I think this has become politically harder than it's been in the past couple of decades is the very high level of interest rates that are consistent with our first conversation. You know, if interest rates were to go to five percent plus on the short end and stay there for a while, means that Congress is going to have to have a conversation about what to do about this because the trajectory will clearly be, Uh, unsustainable. There is no such thing as a simple fix here of quote, raising taxes or quote, cutting spending. I mean, directionally, those are things you have to look at, but it's really a story about reform, about tax reform, about entitlement reform, all of which we talk about in the book. And I think that there is an argument to be made that there are gradual reforms that are progressive that are possible. I would say two or three years ago, I would say they were also a political fairy tale. Now I'm not so sure because again, these higher interest rates are forcing the conversation much as uh, you know, students of course, won't remember this, it's before their time, but much because in the 1980s, early 1990s, the deficit became a big conversation precisely because uh, of a concern about interest payments. And so I, I think we're gonna see that again, but I don't know, what are your thoughts? Yeah, actually, one thing that
0: that we can mention here, and maybe might be something of interest to instructors, and that is the CBO forecasts are peculiar to sense, because the CBO is charged with making these forecasts, assuming current policies remain in place. So it's not the CBO's job to say, well, probably Congress will end up you know, doing this about this type of spending, or they'll raise taxes or whatever, they have to assume that things will continue just as they are. And if you think about the consequences of that, even though this seems like a pessimistic forecast, it might be a little overly optimistic. For instance, they have to assume that the tax cuts that were put in place in 2017 will mostly expire in 2025, because that's what was written into the law. But I think a lot of people, um, just looking at the politics of it, find it hard to believe that Congress in 2025, whichever party is in control or if um, the parties are, uh, have divided controls, they do now, would be willing to have an across the board tax increase because the 2017 tax cuts were across the board tax cuts that if you lead, let them expire, they would be tax increases. I know that other people have said, well, the the forecasts for defense spending that are in there are basically what Congress has currently said, and then rolling over with automatic uh, adjustments to military pay and so on. Or some people say, well, I don't know because you know we've we've been sending a lot of munitions to the Ukraine. We have to sort of gear up and spend a lot of money to replace our stocks. Many people are worried about um, the conflicts with. China and whether or not the Navy is going to have to be boosted or the Air Force. And, you know, there have been shortfalls in recruiting, Well, we have to boost military pay and so on. So some people have said, well, you know, those defense um, increases uh, that are in the budget uh, that are currently in the budget and that the CBO relies on may be too low. And so if you say, well, we're going to have increased... Um, We're going to have increased uh, spending. We're not going to get rid of the most likely most of the uh, 2017 tax credit uh, tax cuts when they expire in 2025. And you could even throw in that their interest rate um, assumptions might be kind of optimistic. They have the federal funds rate dropping below 3%. They have uh, the 10-year Treasury note, which is important because it determines mortgage interest rates and so on, being below 4%. And as you were just talking about, if the Fed has to increase the federal funds rate higher and keep it there, something that people on Wall Street were not expecting until just recently, then the federal government is going to have to spend more to borrow, and they're going to have to pay more out in interest. And then also the the forecast assume no recession. And If you look at their forecast of unemployment, they never get above 5% for this whole 10-year period, which may be um, optimistic to think that we managed to get through the following 10-year period with no recession. So um, I think it makes, if, if you take all that into account, you think, well, probably we'll have more debt than the CBO is forecasting. It makes the points that you were talking about, that at some point, Congress has to think about You know, what do we do about expenditures? What do we do about revenues? And maybe just one last follow-up on what you said is that if you look at their forecasts for federal government expenditures and federal government revenues as a fraction of GDP, the revenues are pretty much where they've been for for many years. They're kind of in like 19, 20 percent. The expenditures, though, are much higher than they've been um, really any time other than more time in the US. And um, as you mentioned, a lot of that has to do with Social Security, Medicare, things that um, are kind of what's called the third rail, right, of American politics that, you know, we've just gone through a period in which Democrats and Republicans are sort of uh, competing to say, we're not going to do anything to, to touch current. Well, those become an increasingly large fraction of the budget. And so you're right that there's There's really no easy fix there that, you know, you're going to have to have some very serious, complicated discussions among members of Congress and the president if you're not going to see a real large increase in the federal government debt relative to GDP over the next 10 years. So that'll be all for today. And we thank everyone who has been listening to us. And we will see you next time when we have another episode of the Hubbard O'Brien Economics Podcast.